0: turn to Psalm 119, verse 145 through verse 152. Uh, this morning we are uh, continuing in our uh, series through Psalm 119, the longest chapter uh, in the Bible and the longest of, uh, of the Psalms as uh, we uh, examine this, um, this psalm, stanza by stanza. Uh, each one of these is uh, is like a verse in a song and it's like a verse in a song because it's, it's what it is it's, uh, it's a song that God has given to his people to sing and to pray um, and the entire uh, the, the entire song this uh, psalm is a psalm that meditates on God's word and this stands in particular deals with God's word. Uh, And what it means to us as we walk through times of darkness. So let's read Psalm 119, verse 145 through 152. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. How do you pray when things are at their worst? Once upon a time, more than two decades ago now, I used to play sports. I say sports, but generally speaking, I specifically mean soccer. Uh, But for pretty much anybody who plays Competitive sports and um, competitive team sports—just about anywhere, no matter what sport you play—there uh, are a few clichés that you're almost guaranteed uh, to hear. And a lot of times, they're the same clichés whether you're playing football or volleyball or uh, any other sport. One that I used to hear routinely—that uh, that a lot of you have probably heard as well—if you have any uh, connection to that sports uh, world is that you play the way you practice. You practice how you play. Now, A player might think, I don't need to work as hard, it's just practice. Um, or a player might take shortcuts, get a little bit sloppy or playful with his or her technique, because after all, it's just practice, and I'll bring my real game when, uh, when it's game time. But if that's how you practice, the problem is it will influence how you play, and you'll pick up habits and, and, uh, and routines that affect you when the game day comes. But if you practice the way that you ought to play, then in the high-intensity environment of a competitive game, it'll come easier to you because when the game time comes, you're just doing what you've trained yourself to do and you've done over and over again um, every practice. You'll be doing exactly what you practiced in exactly the same way. Um, The way you practice is the way you play. Now, sometimes we talk about a sermon as being timely. Have you felt that way, that the sermon that was delivered, it was a timely sermon? Usually, uh, that means that that the sermon gave somebody just the right message just at the moment when it was needed, when it was needed the most. It spoke to right where you are. A sermon about suffering, about times of darkness, can be that way at times. But the fact is, you don't only need that kind of message when it is timely. It's always timely. You don't, always, you don't just need that, that type of message when you're in the middle of a dark trial. You need it, and you also need it in those times when things seem to be very good, they are very good, and God is blessing you and, and your life seems to be flourishing in the Lord. You need it when, in fact, it's not timely, at least in that, uh, um, in that sense. Because if you are not walking through a time of darkness right now, then a time will come in your life when you will be. But if you're equipped ahead of time with the truth... And if you practice the kind of prayer, the kind of meditation upon God's word, and the kind of reliance upon God that is necessary to see you through the difficult times, then you will be better prepared for the trials when they do come. Today's message is a message that speaks to times of suffering. And it comes from a heart that desperately needs God and needs to be Rescued. The context of the prayer is danger. It is persecution. It's trouble and suffering and desperate need. If you are suffering, then this is a prayer that is timely for you today. And this is a prayer for you to pray along with the psalmist and understand that. One of the beautiful things about the psalms is that these are Every one of them is a song, and it is a prayer. It's meant for you to sing at any time. It is meant for you to pray along with the psalmist across all of the hundreds of years that have passed since these words were first uh, inspired, till now, and everywhere in between, this is given for God's people. So this prayer is for you to pray to the Lord. So if you are in the midst of suffering, this is a prayer that is for you to pray. But even if you're not suffering, at least not in any particular way uh, right now, this message is for you too, right now, because it it speaks to the same need for God, the same grounding in his word, and the same hope in his promises that sustain you right now and today. This is a prayer for suffering, but it is also a prayer for all times, because you always Need the Lord. You must always rest on His Word. And when suffering does come, as it will, this kind of prayer and the truth that it speaks to your heart will equip you and sustain you through the troubled times that come in the life of every Christian. This morning's stanza from Psalm 119 teaches us. That the cry of the Christian heart, as it cries out to God from darkness, from the depths of darkness, that cry is grounded in God's word in at least three ways. Your prayer to God should seek his purpose, his promise, and his presence. His purpose, his promise, and his presence. In the first two verses of the stanza, we'll consider the purpose of God and see how the psalmist rests his prayer to God not only on a genuine, wholehearted commitment to seek and obey the purposes of God according to his word, but also a heartfelt desire to see God's purposes fulfilled to the glory of his name. In the middle section of the stanza, then, we'll see the promise. The psalmist's prayer clings to the promise of God in his word, and that promise, as the psalmist holds fast to the promise, it empowers his prayer so that he can pray with not only confidence, but with eagerness and with hope. finally, Later verses of the stanza emphasize God's presence, his presence, as one who not only hears the psalmist's prayer from a distance, but as one who is with the psalmist, who is present with him even in the midst of his darkest distress. Verse 145 and 146 read, With my whole heart I cry, Answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me that I may observe your testimonies. The first thing to notice about the psalmist's prayer in verse 145 is that it's with his whole heart. We're going to dwell on that for for a moment so that we don't just pass over it. It's an expression that that seems common, seems normal, pray, to pray with your whole heart. I think that anybody who spent any time in the church of Christ has heard the exhortation that you're not to hold anything back from God. That's familiar, I think, to a lot of us. Mark twelve thirty says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You shouldn't have any part of your life that is not wholly devoted to God. There's no part of your mind or your soul that is not transformed by him. We give our whole lives to him. We give our whole hearts to him. We love the Lord, our God with our whole heart. But in these verses, I think it's worth stating that general principle and applying it very specifically to the context of this. Uh, this stanza, and to say it very specifically, very directly, to pray with your whole heart. The reason I think it's important to emphasize that this morning is because maybe it's hard to approach God that way in prayer, especially when you are bringing a request to him. Maybe it doesn't feel polite or it seems presumptuous or needy. Or maybe you're even afraid to put your whole heart into your requests because God might not answer those requests the way that you hoped he would. And you want to be content with that. So you don't pray with your whole heart. You hold something back in your prayer. Now, the desire for contentment is a perfectly righteous desire. It's right to say, God, whatever you you choose to do in my life is, is right and I trust you. That's right. That's right. The desire to trust God even when his answers to your prayers are not what you had hoped, that's a godly and biblical desire. But please, do not hold back from God. Don't hold your prayers back from him. Don't hold the yearnings of your heart back from God. Don't hold back your heart from him, even and especially when you pray. Pray like the psalmist and cry out to him, When you feel need, when you feel the desperation of a trial in your life, cry out to him with that need, with your whole heart. When the psalmist cries out to God here, his wholehearted prayer is accompanied by a wholehearted commitment to God, and that is important for us as well. The purpose of his prayer is built around seeking the purposes of God according to his word. He is committed to obeying the statutes set out in the Bible. Now, to understand why this is important, I think it's helpful to note that there is no negotiation that occurs in this stanza. The psalmist does not negotiate with God. He doesn't suggest a deal with God. I'll keep your statutes if you answer me nor is he suggesting that God will answer his prayer because of the psalmist keeping his promises. Now, I'm guessing that none of you has ever been involved in one of those exchanges where two parties meet on a bridge in the middle of the night and they exchange a briefcase full of cash for a load of stolen jewels. We probably don't have anybody who's been involved in one of those deals before. It does happen a lot on TV. I don't know how often it happens in real life. Um, uh, Maybe Ralph might know, but it seems to me that uh, maybe law enforcement ought to pay a little closer attention to bridges at night. (laughs) Now, I know it's fictional, uh, but there's always that moment when they're making the exchange uh, where there's a moment of tension, right, as they're making the handoff. They're both on edge, And nobody wants to be the first one to hand over the goods or to let go of the briefcase because they don't trust the other side. And they're worried that the other side is going to run off with uh, both the jewels and the cash. The psalmist prays the way that he does here because his commitment is not only wholehearted, but it's unconditional. He is simply giving his obedience to God because he loves God and he trusts God. He doesn't know. He doesn't have the, a briefcase from God in hand. He's not trying to make that exchange. He is all in with God. He is giving his life and his obedience to God, period. I will keep your statutes. He just says it. I will keep your statutes, period. No matter what your answer to my prayer is, I am yours. I'm going to make those requests and express those needs and desires of my heart. And I'm going to lay them all out with my whole heart. But whatever God's answer is, God is good. And I will obey you, God. Sometimes God uses difficulties in our lives for that purpose. As an occasion for us to renew our devotion and our obedience to him. Our needs and our trials remind us of how much we rely on God, how much we need him. And they teach us to be wholly devoted to him. And that is how we ought to pray to God, with a daily renewal of our commitment to him and to obey his word. We approach him as people whose lives, thoughts, and actions belong to him because they were purchased by Christ Jesus on the cross. We belong to him. Our obedience belongs to him. And praise the Lord that we belong to him. It's because we belong to him as his children that we can trust that he intends good for us. We belong to him. That commitment to obedience it does not suggest any reliance upon our own ability to please God. Uh, very much the contrary. It's because we cannot live in a way that pleases him or earns good for ourselves that we, that we come to God totally devoted to him and totally reliant upon him in our prayer. So it doesn't, when we make that commitment, we come to God committed, God, whatever may come, I will obey you. That commitment doesn't suggest um, a reliance on our own abilities, but it does suggest a genuine desire to see the will of God done and above all for his glory in fact we believe that the will of God is the best possible thing for our own lives we trust him in that way because we're his children looking at uh, The words of the psalm, verse 146, calls on God to save the psalmist that he might obey. Right after he expresses his commitment to obey God, immediately the psalmist prays, asking God to make him able to obey. I will obey you, God. That's my commitment, because I want your will to be done, and I want your will in my life. Therefore, God, please make me able to obey. Verse 146 also speaks to God's purpose in a different way. The psalmist wants to be used by God. He puts it as a reason for God to answer his prayer so that God can use him as a servant to obey his statutes and observe his testimonies. When we pray in that that way, God, please grant me obedience. It's because in obeying God, God uses us to accomplish his will. And we want to be used. We, we not only want God's will to be done in general, but we want to obey him so that he can use us as an instrument to work his will. It's because we love God and we love his will. We desire his will that we also want to obey. We are seeking God's purpose. In fact, every moment God allows our hearts to continue beating, wherever he places us in this life, that is the reason, so that he can use us as an instrument to accomplish his will. That should be our heart's desire. Um, Every moment that we are living in this world, God is accomplishing something in us, in through, uh, and or through us. He is either uh, equipping and preparing us for eternity uh, or he is performing his will in the world through us or he's doing both. I think even that person who is um, comatose and continuing um, to live and, and, and yet is, is not conscious, even that person If that person is continuing to live, then it is for the purpose God is accomplishing his will, either in that person or through that person in some way that we cannot see. As the Apostle Paul said, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I continue living, then it's for the purposes of God as he works in me and through me in this world. And when those purposes are complete then I will be in the presence of Jesus. So whenever we are praying for our preservation in this world, it is for the purposes of God, either in our own hearts, in the world around us, or most likely both. Now the next few verses then build the psalmist's prayer on the promise of God. Verses 147 through 149 read as follows. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. Verses 147 and 148 um, have some parallels across the two uh, verses. They each offer a word picture That serves as a metaphor. I rise before dawn and cry for help, in verse 147, and then my eyes are awake before the watches of the night, in verse 148. The psalmist rises early before the break of dawn, before the watches of the night. That's what that means, before the watches of the night. Uh, The picture here is a watchman who is waiting for the morning. So a watchman's Job, a night watchman, has the role to keep his eyes open throughout the night, looking for danger and waiting for the sun to rise. Then when the sun comes up, when dawn arrives, he announces the coming of the morning, and then comes the changing of the guard. The dangers of the night have passed, and the day has begun. But the psalmist is out to seek the Lord and to seek the will of the Lord before the night watchman announces the dawn. Now there are a couple of lessons at least that we can learn from this. First is eagerness. It's very simple. It's eagerness. Um, It's that sense of anticipation. Well, you know, You know, the night watchman is going to announce when the sun comes, but you're so eagerly anticipating that sun coming up that you can't wait for that. You are out to seek it before uh, it's even been announced. Like the watchman waits for the morning, the psalmist is waiting on the Lord, but he's not doing it passively. He is rising early, he's out of bed. Early in the morning, he's eager to meet the Lord, eager to see how God might answer his prayer. It's the kind of Christmas morning sense of expectation that you would expect from someone who has confidence in the Lord, that his blessings will come, and in fact, that they may come at any time. One of the terrible effects of anxiety when anyone who has ever experienced crippling anxiety at its most extreme when it strikes the hardest Uh, one of the most terrible effects that it has is an inability to even rise out of bed how does anxiety function well it builds on fear for the bad that might happen it's very much built on what might happen and a an inability to rise out of bed to, to face it. And at its most extreme, it can be very crippling. Now, if you knew with a, with a certainty beyond doubt that only the best would happen, then you wouldn't be stuck fearful and anxious in bed. Even a tendency to anxiety would have a hard time finding something to grip onto because you have nothing to fear. Now, the psalmist doesn't have fear about what might happen. That's not the circumstance of this psalm. He is in the midst of bad that is already happening. He's not fearing bad that might happen. He's in the middle of bad as it's happening. And it's getting worse, and it's going to get worse. He's in the midst of darkness. But his expectation is that the Lord has promised good to him. And even in the midst of that darkness, he is eager to rise to meet it. The second second thing that we can learn from this picture is that the psalmist's sense of expectation is not only eager, but it's abiding. It stays with him. It's not momentary. When the watchman announces the morning, his shift is over. I think he probably goes to bed at that point. Now the guards change, he's off duty. But the psalmist is there early because he's seeking the Lord and will continue to seek the Lord after the sun rises. He will continue to wait upon the Lord even after the changing of the guard. The guards may change shifts, but the psalmist is there early and he's going to stay there. Stay waiting upon the Lord and seeking him until the answer comes. So, both of these verses have a parallel, and uh, they also have a parallel in speaking specifically to where the psalmist sets his sights. He's like a watchman for the morning, he's like a night watchman as the night watchman uh, wait, waits and watches for the rising sun. But what's the psalmist watching for? Verse 147 says, I hope in your words. And verse 148 is a parallel as it says, I meditate on your promise. The promises of God are surer than the rising sun. The watchman, in his duty, he knows that the sun will come. He knows it. The psalmist waits upon the Lord with the same certainty because his hope is grounded in what God has said. God's words are true. And the psalmist hopes, in verse 147, in God's words. And what a blessed hope that we have that his words have spoken. What they've spoken isn't just a list of requirements or a list of facts about um, nature. His words give us a promise, a promise for our salvation and a promise, if you belong to God, for our good. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are his children. Even though we were his enemies, God chose, out of sheer grace, to love us and to save us. We can trust in God's promise to love us and to save us because we know the character of God and that this is verse 149. It focuses on who God is. Our love and our confidence for his promise is grounded on God's character. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. God has told us that he will hear our prayers and we believe him because we know that he is good, he is trustworthy, and he never changes. His love never changes. And so if he chose to love you, then that love is an abiding love. That's why the psalmist's hope in the Lord is abiding, because he knows that the love of God is abiding. And God keeps his promises because, indeed, he is just. So the psalmist trusts in the justice of God. The promise of the gospel is that Christ died to cover your sins, that the punishment that was due for your sins, he bore it for you on your behalf. He bore the wrath of God for your sins to save you. And the gospel promises that if you believe him, then you are indeed saved. And Christ has indeed died for you. If you believe that Christ died for you, not just for others, but for you, and you trust in him. If you simply believe that Christ died for you, that his death is sufficient to cover your sins, then it's true. You're saved by faith alone, simply by trusting in the salvation of Christ. That means you are no longer an enemy of God, but his beloved child and a co-heir with Christ. And if he has promised it, then the justice of God demands that he will keep his promise, that the price for your sins is indeed paid. And his unchangeable promise, his unchangeable faithfulness, means that he will love you as his child for eternity. His promise doesn't change. His faithfulness doesn't change what he has promised he will keep and he will do for eternity lastly the final verses of the stanza regard God not only as a concerned father who listens from a distance but as present imminent and near with his people Just as we read in Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. These verses in Psalm 119 read, beginning with verse 150 and through the end, They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Consider here the contrast between the troubles of the world and the hope of God in verses 150 and 151. Verse 150 speaks about the troubles of the world. This is where the darkness that the psalmist is walking through comes from evil ones who persecute me, agents of the enemy who hate God and seek to do evil to me, it says they draw near. They approach. They come. They are on their way. And that is an ominous thing to hear, a darkness that is approaching you, not just you think, you know. Um, Darkness is coming. You're already in the midst of it. They draw near. Sometimes by God's providence, um, when you see the dark clouds on the horizon, sometimes by God's providence, they do come. And you can see it coming, and then it arrives. Sometimes, indeed, they do persecute me. Not always, but it certainly happens. And it will happen in your Christian life that uh, those dark clouds, they they aren't going to disperse. They're going to come. But see here the way the psalmist describes them. They draw near. It's something that's happening. They're coming. That is a frightening thing. And uh, the impression is that they may very well carry out some of their evil intent very soon. They probably already have committed evil against the psalmist in, uh, in this stanza. I think that's the implication when he describes them as people who persecute me. You can't be a person who persecutes me unless you've actually done it. He'd only describe them that way if, uh, if it's happened. And he knows what their intentions are because they, they, they have carried out those intentions. They're, pe- they're people who persecute him. And they haven't stopped. They draw near. But then compare that to how, as ominous as that is, compare it to how the psalmist describes God. In the next verse. Now he could say. God draw near. They draw near. So God please you draw near now. Draw near to me and protect me. But he doesn't. He says you are near. O oh Lord. Already. I think the implication is always. You are near. God. He prays to the God who said of himself. I am. And he prays you are near. You are near, present tense, always and eternal. Troubles of the world may draw near, but God is near. Troubles come, God is. That is why the evils of the world might intend evil, but they cannot ultimately accomplish evil against the children of God, not in a true spiritual or eternal sense, because God is never caught unawares, and they will never beat him to the punch. They can't outrace him to the target. They may draw near, but he is near. They may intend what they do for evil, but he will intend it for good. They cannot thwart his purposes, but he will thwart theirs and turn their evil intent unto his good purposes. Amen. The psalmist trusts in the present help of God, both because of the trustworthiness of God's word and because he has personally experienced God's goodness. Verse 151 says, all your commandments are true. And verse 152 says, they are not only true, but eternal, unbreakable. He says, you have founded them forever. They are true, and they are founded forever. And verse 152 also speaks to how the psalmist has learned the trustworthiness of God's promises. And this is important. This is an important thing to walk away with today. The psalmist says, long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. When he speaks the words, long have I known, it suggests something that the psalmist has learned over time, from experience. It isn't a new discovery. It's been a reality in the psalmist's life that he has felt over time. He's experienced it. He's known it. That's why he can say, long have I known. He's drawing on his past. He's known it in the past, and so he knows it now. But much more importantly than that, the psalmist says he has known the trustworthiness of God's word from God's word. Do you see that? It says, long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Them is a pronoun. And when you have a pronoun, you have to think about what the noun is that the pronoun is referring to. So what noun is uh, is, uh, the word them supplying here? It's the only other suitable noun in the sentence. Your testimonies. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded your testimonies forever. So how do I know that your testimonies are founded forever? From your testimonies. How did the psalmist learn to trust God's testimonies? From God's testimonies. That is an easy one, folks, but it's an important one to go home with today. Read the Bible. That's the message. Read the Bible. Come to church and hear God's word preached. You want to learn how to trust the Bible when troubled times come? Read the Bible. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? You want to learn how to trust his word, you read his word. Psalm 119, 152 has just given you the instruction manual for troubled times in your life. Read the Bible. Hear it preached. Immerse yourself in it. You learn to trust the Bible from the Bible. Now, that's not circular reasoning. You might think that sounds like circular reasoning, but it's not, because because of how it happens. Why does it work this way? It works because what truly happens when you read God's word with the heart of faith, having trusted in Christ Jesus as your Savior, what truly happens is that the Holy Spirit, when you open the word of God, the Holy Spirit applies the truth of the Bible to your heart and teaches you to trust in God. It's not just the word On the page. It is what the Holy Spirit does through that word in your heart. That's how you learn to trust in the testimonies of God. That's why you read the Bible daily. It is not just a mental exercise. It is spiritual work. And the Holy Spirit works through it. When you open your Bible with a heart of faith, You read it with heart of faith. You are asking the Holy Spirit to impart to you increased faith and the trust in the word that will ultimately sustain you through every troubled time. When you read the Bible, you are equipping yourself. But no, that's wrong. You are approaching God that he might equip you for every trial now in conclusion god wants you to cry out to him he wants you to cry out to him today for the trouble that may come that you don't see yet he wants you to cry out to him if you're in the midst of trouble he wants you to cry out to him with your whole heart told nothing back to him from him when you do You seek his purpose, knowing that that purpose is the best possible thing for you, for your heart, for your soul, for your life, for eternity. He wants you to cry out to him, trusting that his promise to you is real, that you belong to him, that he cares for you, that no harm can come to you unless the Lord intends it unto your salvation. And he wants you to cry out to him, trusting That he doesn't just hear from far away, but that he is with you and in you and working in you. And as troubles draw near, he is near. Always and eternally. Amen.